So this morning I'm going to preach about the reading from 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about a mystical experience that actually he had, but he mentions in the third person. And then there's the famous reference uh, further on in the reading about the thorn in the flesh. So I should, um, we'll say some things about that. And then in Mark's gospel, there are two uh, pericopes, or two uh, readings. I uh, wrote in my sermon, just to impress myself, the word pericope, and I didn't realize that I spelled it periscopes, (laughs) and the spell check didn't pick it up. And neither did I. So instead of pericope, it's pericope is a little section of the reading, uh, and uh, that's what it's called. It's a fancy term for that. But we have the story of Jesus in his hometown or in his home district area and uh, receiving the big discount. And then we have him sending out the apostles on a missionary journey and speaking about Uh, what they do when they meet resistance, among other things, how we might understand what that means. So, Paul and spiritual experience. Uh, In the Episcopal Church and in the Anglican Communion, I've mentioned this many times, there are two distinct forms, generically, of spirituality that operate within our tradition. They're not unique to our tradition, but they have been part of how we've understood ourselves uh, really from the, from the time we became the Anglican Communion as opposed to the Catholic Church. And so the first one, I'm going to do the most recent one first and the most ancient one last. The most recent one, which has been around for about 300 plus years, is called pietism. Johann Sebastian Bach was a pietist, and there were a lot of German Lutherans in the 17th century who were pietists, and you can tell by some of the hymns and things that he wrote. Uh, It is the belief in the necessity for the felt presence of God to know that you're on the right track. Sometimes it's referred to as the consolation. And I suppose in American uh, life, religious life, over our history, it could be referred to in evangelical circles as being born again. In other words, having a personal experience uh, that you've been saved or a personal experience of the presence of God. And this manifests itself in a number of ways. So pietism is always part of how we have understood ourselves. The more ancient one is what I, my teacher, Urban Holmes, referred to as mysticism. And it's an unfortunate word, but we're speaking about mystical experiences today in the epistle from 2 Corinthians. Uh, mysticism, when Terry Holmes described it, was not some sort of twilight zony thing, but it was a process 
of understanding our move towards union with God and God's purposes for us. You know, sort of like uh, Father Keating talks about when he said uh, in developmental psychology, you're born and all of a sudden you come to the realization that there's you and then there's the other, right? So in spiritual or terms, you would say there's me and there's God. And you then say, uh, those are two. And then finally, in, in uh, the movement in meditation and in spiritual growth is, you realize that, that, that they're not two, but one, right? So your true self is God. You understand uh, that God center, mystical union, unitive purgative, uh, the old way of speaking about it. But mysticism, the way... Uh, Terry Holmes talked about it was this, the process of the ascent towards God involving five things, purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. So the first two are kind of highfalutin terms. Purgation means to purge yourself of the habits of being and relating that cause you not to be uh, united with God's purposes in your life, right? To find the ways and the means to, to do that. Uh, some of that is, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But that's purgation. That's the desire to do that. Unhealthy habits of being and relating. The second thing is emptying, which means that you cultivate the ability in, you know, uh, Dr. John McQuarrie wrote a book uh, years ago called uh, On Prayer, and he described in one chapter prayer as thinking. There are two kinds of spiritual life. You know, there's one where you don't do anything, you know, sort of keating, it's centering prayer. And then there's discursive meditation. And so he was talking about prayer as thinking. So when I say this to people, they say, well, you know, I, I can't get that. I have the fidgets. I don't know what to do. If you sit quietly with your thoughts, then the issue arises, what do you do with the distractions? How do you handle those? And in the prayer life, in the spiritual life, emptying is the process by which you begin to push to the side those distractions. And if you do it more, the better you get. So it's not something that you just can do. It requires some intention. It requires uh, a decision to do that. And so emptying is part of the spiritual life. Discipline is the cultivation of the interior self-regulation, the regulation of instinctual drives to be able to do God's work in the world or to be somebody who is... Uh, understands uh, what it means to be a human being. You know, a lot of times the stuff we need to bring under control are normal natural things that we need for survival. But sometimes they go off the rails. So we need to figure out how to uh, have some species of discipline. Get up and brush your teeth. Father Parsons at Neshota House used to say to us that is those are called the duties of state, which is an old-fashioned term in the spiritual life. 
to uh, fulfill the duties of state that each person has. You know, part of that is old-fashioned because there was a difference in people's minds between public and private that we don't have any longer in the same sense. If, somebody, if some reporter would have asked George Washington if he had had a mistress somewhere in Virginia, the guy wouldn't have had the question out of his mouth before, the, before Washington would have run him through with his sword. None of your business. That's a private matter. Now, we've understood that uh, having a, uh, understanding that in that way has been uh, pernicious, for sure. But it's also important to understand uh, the need to make distinctions. And sometimes we're not too good at that in terms of how we understand things. Discipline, study. To be the best student you can be of all the things you need to be a student of. So we would say the, um, the deep things of Christian life, or maybe not the not-so-deep things of Christian uh, faith and life. I've been on this hobby horse now for a, about a month or two uh, about the fact that we are the, one of the most religious countries in the Western world, and also one of the most religiously ignorant countries in the Western world. So when people, sociologists and everything, pass out questionnaires, they ask questions like, who is Joan of Arc? Joan of Arc is Noah's wife. 20%. <laughs> you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And this isn't just Episcopalians or mainline Protestants. It's evangelicals who don't know this stuff. They don't know the Bible they hold up as being the absolute and sure authority for everything. They don't know beans when the bag is open either. <laughs> so maybe just a little peek. There was a cartoon in the uh, Saturday Evening Post when I was a little boy uh, of a building being destroyed and the wrecking ball had hit the wall and the front part of the building had fallen off and there was a guy... Uh, scrubbing his back in the bathtub up high in one of the stories and the foreman on the job said let's have another peek at that address <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should have just a little peek in uh, some of the deep things of, or the things of Christian faith and life and whatever else it is that you need to be don't you hope and pray Every time you go see the doctor, that your doctor is read up, right, is keeping up with whatever it is is their specialty, or if the, they're your uh, primary physician, they have some vague idea of the, the various trends in uh, contemporary medicine, right? And they're not merely just taking the word of some detail person, which is the fancy term of the guy who peddles the pharmaceuticals, who comes by the office and says, here, try this. Uh, you know, that they know a little bit more about it than, than merely what is being suggested by the people who have a vested interest in selling the drug. So it's important that we all keep up. And that's study. Does this have anything to do with the spiritual life? You bet it does. Okay. 
study, and then patience. That's the hardest one. Patience is the belief, well, now I've go I'm going through all these five things, and I'm sitting here, and I have, there's no result. I'm not, I'm not feeling like anything is happening. I don't know what to do, right? And that's because you have a timetable for this. And uh, God is the being that has the timetable for what it is, uh, for the progress. As you begin to see slowly and surely what it is, you know. Two words in the New Testament in Greek for time, chronos, chronological time, and kairos, which means time. So spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity comes with, in kairos time, in God's time. And we believe that that's the way in which we understand uh, th this progress. It certainly can be frustrating because here we are with the remotes these days and we're on a 24-7 uh, internet and we want the results immediately. I find that that's becoming more and more of a difficulty in my own case. Why isn't it happening now? All right, Paul is facing a situation on the ground in Corinth. In his absence, people have come into the Corinthian church and they have said, Paul may have said to you these things about what is necessary for the Christian life or what the Christian life is. And Paul would mean by that, and we would mean, it has no has been true among many, but being in Christ. That's what it is. So that is his main message. They came in and said no. Uh, Paul may have said that, but don't you believe that for a moment. The, the affirmation of the truth of what we're teaching you is that you're capable of having these mystical experiences. And we're talking about whoppers. You know, where pe have you ever sort of felt a little sad when you've heard people who've described things that they've been through or, or experienced, mystical experiences or the presence of God? And you said, gee, I've never felt anything like that. When I was in seminary, there was a sociological study that was published by two guys. One's last name was Glauck, and the other's last name was Stark, Rodney Stark. It was called American Piety. And in this book, in their study, they said 85% of the population in our study said that at least once in their life they had had a, an experience of God. Some form of a, an intense experience of God, even if it was for a split second. That's a fairly high percentage. I don't know what it would be like now. But I expect that, that it's around more than we realize. And I'm always awed as a pastor when people have told me some of their experiences. Father Parson has again said to us, in your ministry, you're going to meet people whose personal spiritual life is far deeper than your own. And you should not use that as a um, criticism of your own efforts, but to thank God that you have, have been able to hear them.
and what they've had to share with you about those experiences and their importance and commend it. So Paul is speaking in the third person. Uh, I know a person who, but he's speaking about himself. So really what he's saying here is, okay, you want to talk spiritual experiences, let me give you a spiritual experience. And then he describes this in, in categories that are a little hard for most of us about being brought up into the third heaven and being shown things that nobody should speak of and uh, so on and so on, right? And he said, as long as the gang that's been, that's been in there, he doesn't say it this way, David Brewer says it this way, if they're going to boast, then I'm going to boast. I have had these experiences, but I don't talk about them. So after having said, I've listened to people share their spiritual experiences, and so have you, I'm sure. And while that's very edifying, all of us should exercise some degree of humility with regard to sharing those experiences. We should exercise some reserve. In the Oxford movement, they published 90 tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, and one of the tracts was entitled Concerning Reserve in Imparting Religious Knowledge. <laughs> so most of us, when we're very enthusiastic, sometimes we simply can't resist. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, spoke in tongues. And nobody would know this unless uh, people had access to his private diaries after he died. And he wrote it down. But he never spoke of it in any of the official stuff that he wrote or in any of the stuff about the exercises or any of that sort of business, you know? So what I'm saying is, is that we ought to exercise some reserve in imparting those kinds of things to people, particularly because it, can, it, can, it can't... Sometimes it doesn't build up. Sometimes it's just bragging. Sometimes it's just um, making people feel like, gee, I've never felt like that, and I don't know whether I ever will. And is there something wrong with me? Am I sort of down here in the uh, spiritual life and so forth? So Paul is saying that to the Corinthian congregation. Don't, uh, don't do that. Now, he said, here is the thing. I have been tempted to allow my enthusiasm for these experiences to run riot and tell everybody because of the, how wonderful it, I felt, you know? And he said, uh, what's calmed me down is, is that God has given me a thorn in the flesh to remind me that there's still more work to do, Right? Uh, many people have speculated for a long, long time about the nature of the thorn in the flesh. And the best remark about that I found this week was from Dr. Reginald Fuller, who is a New Testament scholar in the 20th century. He died uh, in his 90s in the 2000s, but he was great. 
he quotes another biblical scholar in this commentary and said, um, the patient has been dead for over 2,000 years. So, if you have a theory, fine. You know, none of us will know this. He describes that he's had a thorn in his side. Some people have said it's eye trouble. Some people have said he had epilepsy. Some people said he was a homosexual. Some people have said, okay. But whatever it was, it was some sort of a spiritual stumbling block that allowed him to say, I need to be humble about my spiritual growth. Humility is not self-abnegation, the groveling, a groveling person or a self-effacing person. That is not what humble is. Humble is knowing yourself. Thomas Aquinas said, it is knowing how high you can reach. Now, this is the Silicon Valley, so when I would say that to some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they would say, well, that's silly. Our whole goal is to exceed our grasp. You know, so that's a hard one for us, isn't it? We need to stretch ourselves when we think about that. But what Aquinas was speaking of and what Paul is speaking of is self-knowledge and honesty. And that's what Paul is speaking of too. And so his enthusiasm has been tempered by this thorn in the flesh. And I suspect most of us have one, either a a big one or a little one, but it's always there, you know. And uh, I know it's very difficult to speak in terms of the redemptive nature of suffering, so I'm not going to do that. But there is something about having uh, something to to, uh, work on that can help help you get outside yourself. When you do that, it helps. So, Jesus is in Nazareth. And he is uh, speaking there, and the people who are there in his hometown do not take him seriously. And we have the famous thing there of, I think, a prophet is not without honor except in, in his own country. If you've ever wanted to do something or follow a path in your life that your family or close associates did not foresee for you or want you to do, you will understand this passage completely. You will know exactly what it means. And you'll also know where elsewhere the Savior says, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sisters, you cannot be my disciple. And so it says in this thing, he cannot do any good work in his own territory, in his own home area. Here are some commentators. No one in Nazareth attributes God as the source of Jesus' power or the special relationship he has with God or that he is God's son and that Jesus has redefined his membership in the family. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? And aren't these his brothers and sisters? It's quite a list, isn't it, of brothers and sisters? 
that are there, you know. I once, t once asked a, a Russian Orthodox priest about the fact that, well, it says, you know, in the, in the New Testament that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And uh, what do you think about that? He says, well, we know that it's, it's what it says there, but we would prefer just to leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> we would not speculate. The reference to Jesus being Mary's son, the failure to identify him by his father's name, may reflect rumors about the legitimacy of his birth. The naming of his occupation stresses his unremarkable reputation and lack of religious credentials. In other words, the combination of divine power and human ordinariness makes no sense to them. I forgot to mention when I was talking about Paul, when Paul describes the experience that he had, there is extant in the, lit in the literature of the ancient Near East around the time of Paul four rabbis who attest to having a similar experience in the description. So it's not unique to Paul. And in this particular case, the... Uh, the interesting thing is that this does not mean that they disagree with his teaching or the validity of his miracles, but rather that God is not the source of his power and authority. Their belief that this is from some other source does not forbid Jesus' performing mighty works entirely, but it does inhibit them. So too can this happen with those near and dear to us if we discount their vision, their vocation, or feel threatened by the choices they make. You know, all my, uh, I have tried for a long time to resist the temptation to live vicariously through my children. My oldest son is developmentally disabled. He's special. And so he has a vocation that I applaud, which is functioning highly. But my young son is a chef. I just think that's wonderful. But he was going down certain other roads over time, and I just bit my tongue. You know? They, they do what they do, you know. And when I decided to go to seminary, of course, I left the family business, my mother said to me, why do you have to do this? Why don't you go to law school? You'd be a great lawyer. Because I don't want to be a lawyer, Right? So all of us, I think, who are parents need to, rem to just to remind ourselves that uh, we have to sometimes make a main force effort not to impose uh, our will on our children because of some self-image we have about who they are and what they ought to be like. And I suspect some of this was going on in an ancient way uh, in, the, in this. The second pericope is about Jesus sending out 
the apostles two by two. There are more than one version of this in the Synoptic Gospels, and it doesn't sound to me as though these missionary journeys, they're called, were much of a success. Although here, Mark, the earliest gospel, reports success, or at least some, with what they do. And he tells them to go and gives them some, some uh, requirements about how they should travel and travel very light indeed. When I was the rector of Christchurch Sausalito, there were a, bunch of, there were a, a handful of people uh, in, uh, they belonged to some sect, Christian sect, uh, and I, I think it finally went a cropper, but they all dressed like this. They all had like army blankets on with a rope and a staff, and they would walk around Marin County and show up in your church and, you know, begin to do stuff. And it was like an absolutely literal example uh, of what this is. But what I like is the idea of, uh, in any message that we might have, it's not fair to discount people. And Jesus said, accept the hospitality of the people who offer it to you. If you receive no hospitality, then shake the dust off your feet. I remember a press conference when we first invaded Iraq in 2000 and whenever, and the president was in Iraq at a press conference and a number of Iraqi reporters had taken their shoe off and held it up like this to him. You don't want that. You don't want to have that, them show you the bottom of your shoe. Because that was a contemporary example of just what he's telling them to do. Not a good sign. Not a good sign. So I think sometimes... Uh, the part that we don't want to hear here is that refusing to listen on some people's part has consequences. So I don't want to sound all fire and brimstone about this. All I want to say is that about whatever it is that's important, we need to pay attention and to understand that our, I, our actions have consequences. And we should always remember that. So this week, remember that those spiritual insights you have are important and should be cherished, but humbly accepted and communicated to others, humbly. Remember that those near and dear to you might choose a path that is hard for you to grasp or understand, and your discount can blunt their effectiveness. He could do very few mighty works in his hometown, except lay his hands on a few sick people, and they were cured. Thank God for that. Remember also that you have been asked to join Christ. Ignatius Loyola, I love this. He said, you need to figure out how you can join Christ in his work. And all of this is preparatory to coming clear about what that means. How can we join Christ? in his work. Amen.